Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world... Oh, wait. What Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get FOMO, in the way of tomorrow's, way of opportunities. tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, Instead let adaptive, let adaptive asset, allocation asset allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Reserve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. How are we doing? What's up, Mike? That was some crazy reverberation going. I don't know what our sound crew's doing, but they are... uh... They, the hamster's not working hard enough. <laughs> well, I do love Are you it. hearing that? I don't know. Yeah, I do love the infographics, man. That's good. Good. Uh, good ad. Got to pay the bills. How you doing, dude? It's good to see you. Good to see you, bro. Just I'm here in uh, Baton Rouge, getting ready for the LSU Old Miss game tomorrow. Getting getting my spirit on and uh, chatting a little macro with the uh, macro meister himself, forty two. Thank you, man. So I appreciate you for having me on. I'm excited for yeah. you, man. Uh, like yeah, SPC hey, football in country, so uh, you're gonna have a good weekend. I, I'm, I'm damn sure that. We're gonna we have, uh, like a tailgate party with a hundred people, so can't wait. We're gonna keep this to an hour so we can go get started. Oh, dude, thirty <laughs> minutes. I, I I do not want to be the reason you are being held <laughs> back from beer, yep. cold beer on a Friday mm-hmm. afternoon in Bayou, man. Come on. Well, let let's 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 pitter patter and get after. Her. So Richard may join us. I know he's having a few computer issues, but mm-hmm. so yeah, let's get let's get caught up on the macro scene. Um, what are you seeing out there? Give us a little bit of landscape of what what uh, forty two macro seeing. We got all kinds of. 
upheaval in the bond market. What do we got? Global growth. And then we got the long end of the bond curve giving us higher yields. I don't know. It's all very confusing. Yeah, help, help us. Yeah. So this is uh, so macro's back and macro's back of the vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every sort of, you know, let's call it, I don't know, throughout the duration of my career, I started in this biz in 2009 after college. And, you know, I'd say probably like every three, three and a half years, there's there's a there's a problem. Um, you know, sometimes it's longer, sometimes it's shorter. And this is one of the bigger problems. In fact, if you look at the, you know, the kind of the year to day returns or the uh, cumulative peak to trough drawdowns we're seeing in fixed income and, and equity securities on a simultaneous basis. You know, this is one of the worst bear markets ever. You know, if you look about the, yeah. the cumulative destruction of capital across the sort of total aggregate portfolio, and we're not even including yeah. the likely drawdown we may see in housing prices. Uh, here in the U.S. on a nationwide basis over the next 12 to 18 months. So, um, you know, this is nasty. It's nasty stuff. We know what's driving it. It's the Fed's reaction function to inflation. And so as investors, in terms of thinking about where our next pivots are, how to put money to work, where to preserve capital, where to start deploying capital, it's really about understanding uh, the timing of the Fed pivot, uh, Mm -hmm. the nature of the Fed pivot. And then I would argue a secondary consideration of that is, you know, where are we in the growth cycle when that occurs? Because that will have pretty significant implications on sector and style factor dispersion in equity and credit markets. Uh-huh. Have significant implications on just sector dispersion in the fixed income markets and how much sort of general risk tolerance investors are going to want to want to allocate. What so do you think of this? Use. Yeah. What, what, what do you think of the, um, the sort of. I guess over the last day or so, there's been this, there's a rumor of a, a, a of a pivot now, right? So it's like almost, almost as though, hey, Richie. Hey, Rich. What's up, buddy? Hey, guys. Sorry, I'm late. Uh, no worries. Good to see you. No worries. Darius, welcome back. Yeah, Thanks, sorry. Uh, Mike, you were about to uh, ask something. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I just, uh, we, we, Darius just mentioned the pivot, global growth versus inflation. I think there's, there's so many ways to go with this. I think one of the, the biggest things maybe, Darius, you could elaborate on is how the inflation regime may have changed it and its structural implications for the other asset prices. Like, I actually think that at the at the highest level is something that's kind of misunderstood. Mm-hmm. The, the reason that, you know, you're getting correlations between fixed income and, and growth assets now, and that's quite unique. Like it, you have to go back to sort of pre-1990 to get bonds and stocks correlating. So we've got this combined drawdown in these two asset classes that for 30 years have been very non-correlated. Yeah. And maybe you could touch on a little bit of, you know, the inflationary dynamics and how it sort of causes that structurally. Yep. And 100%. then and, and help and help people sort of understand that well, this is truly a regime change. It's different. It's not by the by the fucking dip anymore. Like this is a slightly different set of circumstances. You have to be careful with the BTFD crowd now. Yeah. Right? I don't know. I'm just we're trying to help. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so one of my favorite jokes, uh, Ani, if you can uh, pull up our, our, our my slide deck here, um, you know, sort of one of my favorite jokes uh, before I even get into the inflation is, uh, you know, we swapped girlfriends here year to date, you know, so we went from like dating our, our, our friend Tina, yeah. she was all the rage, she's the hot girl on the block, you know, and now we're, uh, we have to dump Tina, and now there's Tara, and there's, you know, there's a reasonable alternative uh, to, to do, there is no alternative, you know, um, and that reasonable alternative now is cash, the yield that we're seeing on cash, um, you know, so this chart shows is the, the blue line is the, just sort of the three month, uh, the three, the 12 month, T, the, the 12 month T bill yield, 
uh, at, you know, sort of, I think, where are we at here? Uh, most recent price at 4.47%. We got the S&P 500's next 12-month dividend yield. And as you can see, we're now 268 basis points north of that. I mean, you have to go back to when, you know, I was in, I want to say, you know, sixth grade maybe or something like that. Or no, or no, I think it was in eighth grade the last time we had, um, you know, T-bill yields, uh, significantly higher than the S&P yield. So there is a reasonable alternative. And part of the reason there's a reasonable alternative is the Fed's response to inflation. You know, you ask a question about regime change and why stocks and bonds are now correlated, um, you know, after spending you know most of the previous 30 years, um, you know, uh, inversely correlated and really being the foundational aspects of 60-40, risk parity, et cetera. And the real driver of that is, you know, you get is a couple of things. One, one, we're in a higher inflation regime. And, you know, we can talk about all the different drivers of the inflation regime uh, separately. But, you know, just kind of the key takeaways on this transition, this regime changes, you know, higher inflation tends to beget higher inflation volatility. Uh, the blue line in this chart just shows headline CBI data going all the way back to 1881 from my former professor at Yale University here, Bob Chiller. And, you know, what you tend to see is high inflation regimes tend to, co com or to correspond to higher levels of inf uh, inflation volatility. This is uh, this red line shows the percentile of the trailing five-year volatility, realized volatility of headline CBI. And so when you look at that further, you tend to want, you you know, you can sort of explore the data in a, a, several different sort of um, categories. But one thing we looked at and did the research on is try to understand, hey, what does the higher inflation volatility means? Well, we typically right. see higher volatility in both nominal and real economic growth. You know, what we're showing here in this chart, um, you know, as a proxy for both nominal and real growth are just the mean uh, percentiles of the five-year uh, volatility of, of nominal earnings growth and real earnings growth on the right. And as you can see, it's a pretty linear step function increase higher if you go from you know the first quartile to the fourth quartile in inflation volatility in terms of the relationship to earnings volatility. And so part of the reason, you know, good to kind of uh, land the bow on the plane or land the plane on the, the, the tarmac here, part of the reason we're seeing so much volatility in fixed income markets because we're transitioning from something that looks like this from a economic standpoint, a nominal growth standpoint, a real growth standpoint, the two most important variables for pricing fixed income securities to something that looks more like this, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of volatility we're going to see with inflation and growth. And so ultimately, the bond market is having a really difficult time. This is 10 year treasury term premium. The bond market's having a difficult time trying to ascertain one, what is the fundamental price of a fixed income security in this different regime where we're probably going to have more structural inflation. And I also happen to think, which is a loaded statement, we can unpack this later. I also happen to think we're going to have Fed acquiesce to more structural inflation at some point later in the next couple of years. And so as a function of that, you know, there's all this sort of consternation going on across global sovereign debt markets associated with repricing all that different volatility and the changes yeah. in the Fed's reaction function of that, but also the consternation associated with just a general uncertainty. You know, that, that those are kind of big things there. What are you seeing for, for the sort of long-term settling out on this inflation rate? Do you think they can even get to a target of two? Or do you think that that's more three, four and a half and, and uh, yields going to be a little higher than that a little longer? Yeah, no. So uh, so we, we've built a pretty sophisticated dynamic factor model. Uh, we've been talking about this all year, really, since February, which is, you know, if you look at some of the core drivers of core inflation in terms of projecting the underlying mean of the time series, you know, things like automation, globalization, or rather deglobalization at this point, you know, the rise in public debt, you know, monopsony power, you know, wealth, wages, all that stuff, the things that have, you know, contributed to, you know, persistent disinflation over the last 30 to 40 years. All those things are not all, but many of those things are moving in reverse. And the key takeaway is, 
you know, when you sort of run the analysis, you know, our model is projecting a range of about 70 to 120 basis points more in terms of the underlying mean of, of core PCE. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but what it effectively means is we're going to go from something that's, you know, just inside of two to just inside of three. And this is before we factor in any sort of incremental commodity price inflation, potential dollar uh, depreciation, the other side of whatever Fed pivot we're likely to get over the medium term. And so all that stuff is going to be additional, um, additional uh, sort of, uh, let's call it additional impetus to, to, to the underlying mean of inflation to, to transpose itself higher. And so I happen to think that, you know, it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to get inflation, to stick inflation persistently in and around two. I think three is going to become the new two as it relates to core inflation here in the U.S., um, unless they really want to sacrifice, you know, kind of uh, the economy uh, to, to kind of achieve what is, you know, will increasingly, in my opinion, become kind of an outdated political objective. But didn't the Fed change their framework, Darius? Remind me, I'm trying to remember uh, if this was right uh, before 20. COVID or right after COVID, but uh, they mm -hmm. went from uh, an av they, they, they moved towards an average inflation uh, target, right? It, it's, n it's never really a target. It's not an explicit target, but implicitly there's a band of comfort that used to be 2% uh, a year. And then they moved towards something that was average. And it, I, I don't know if they specified the number of years that they were averaging out, but it sounded like they were trying to buy themselves uh, some room in order to allow for some more inflation volatility, if you will. Wouldn't this uh, sort of give them a little bit more leeway, uh, given what you just described? Yes and no. So we, we're well past the threshold of leeway, right? Like they, they going from two to four and saying, you know, it's transitory. That's the leeway. <laughs> going from four to nine is, is well beyond the point of leeway. And it's obviously an issue uh, both politically and also to, to the broader economy and, to the, and to, the, um, to, to capital markets. And so, you know. If you if you you know the, the problem with having a two percent average inflation target in a world where inflation is three is that you're never going to get to the below two to meet your average right and at some point you know the Fed you know has to acknowledge the fact that you know the the the, the, the economy has changed and we have things like deglobalization and rising competition for resources you know et cetera you know breaking apart of supply chains uh, you know from a from a global perspective to a regional perspective all this stuff is contributing to that so the Fed and and by the way. Jay Powell has been one of the thought leaders in the global financial or global central banker community about acknowledging all this stuff, you know, changing in real time. Um, and so ultimately, you know, going back to the pivot that they made, you highlighted Richard in, in, in August of 2020, you know, to basically, you know, they, they wanted to have more inflation to, quote unquote, let the economy run hot to allow for the maximum the, the achievement of what it was a new kind of characterization of their employment mandate, which is maximum dot, 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 and inclusive, right? It's basically let the economy run hot so we can make sure that more disaffected groups who have historically sort of been kind of late to the party in various economic cycles with, you know, getting wage increases, jobs, et cetera, um, they accomplished that. And they accomplished that <laughs> in, in spades. And this is uh, kind of where we are here with an economy that's very clearly overheating from a labor market perspective. Now, we're, we're hearing from a lot of uh, people in the global macro space that, you know, the Fed is making a mistake that they're uh, using inflation, which is, you know, PCE or CPI, whichever one you choose, they're backward uh, looking indicators and that there are, you know, ample signs that the economy is starting to keel over at that they're eventually going to be forced to pivot. But now they've been in the substance of this corner where they have to 
continue to talk tough. Now, I wonder if you might, I, I, I kind of did a summary of, of that argument that we've heard. I wonder if you might steel man that argument as to perhaps why your current thesis could be wrong, but then say why the, the, your current thesis is still uh, the, the correct way to think about where we're going right now. I'm not sure if I, if I followed like your steel man thesis. What, what's the basis for that? No, the, I wonder if you can explain why these people are referring to the current framework for the Fed as wrong, right? The, the, the fact that they're, they're, they're tightening into uh, a recession right. is what they're describing. So if you might be able to, to steel man that version of the, uh, of the argument, yeah, we'll come back to your side of the argument and kind of tell yeah, us. So, what. I mean, look, we're, we're never going to, there's no right answer to this question, right? This is, a, this is a real philosophical question on whether you believe the Fed should be intervening in markets and the economy and, and at what intervals, when should they be intervening? It's whether they should be and when they should they be. We don't particularly care to answer those kinds of questions because they tend not to be relevant to making and saving money in financial markets, which is all I care about. All we care about are 42 macro. The real question is, why is the Fed doing what it's doing? And the Fed, in our opinion, is doing what it's doing because the fiscal authority, aided by the Fed, did what it did in 2020 and 2021. The, you know, there's a reason the U.S. core inflation dynamics on a three-month annualized basis, you know, pick your statistic. You know, my, one of my favorites is median inflation or median CPI. There's a kind of, you know, rid of all the noise associated with, you know, airline tickets, used cars, all that stuff. You know, we're, we're still compounding at 7% three-month annualized. You know, there's a reason. Europe's not doing that. <laughs> you know, so that what happened in 2020 and 2021, you know, from a, just from a, like a key headline takeaway perspective is we dumped $6.5 trillion into a U.S. economy that was a roughly around $15 trillion at the time, you know, if you look at it on an average and smooth basis. And so, um, and this is from the fiscal authority, which again was being capitalized by the monetary authority. We didn't have to pay for that. We didn't have to pay for that, all that debt issuance. The Fed was paying for the debt issuance. So we monetized basically two thirds, or not two thirds, a third of our economy in the course of, you know, let's call it 24 months, 18, 24 months. And we are all sitting here wondering why we have so much inflation. Not only do we have a lot of inflation, we have an excess of inflation relative to the rest of the world. You know, we looked at this, um, you know, if you look at the spread between our inflation relative to the rest of the world's inflation, you know, it's in the 90, 95th percentile through, the, uh, I want to say that's data through August, right? Go, going back 50 years, <laughs> there's a reason that spread is in the 95th percentile. It's because we overcooked the goose. We overcooked the turkey. And now the Fed's so, dealing. Now they brought up the broom and the mop and they're dealing with it. And the, the, I mean, the, the tightening liquidity conditions, um, are you seeing any signs of growth? So when we think about the recessionary impacts or the growth impacts that the tightening liquidity is having, the increase in rates, going into quantitative, quantitative tightening, the housing market, like global growth looks shitty. Any kind of forward-looking indicators look kind of crappy. The yield curve, inversion across the curve, the, the tens, threes, the last holdout is the, the one thing that is always the thing that identifies the recession. Mm -hmm. I guess labor might be the only thing that's saying that growth is hanging in there. How, how are you seeing the growth side of the equation now, right? So we've talked about inflation. We've talked about the new regime. We've talked about increase in volatility we should expect. We should probably think that assets need to have some kind of further discount so we get more returns in the future for the risk we're taking. Mm -hmm. Now, on the growth side, 
are you seeing any sort of sprouts, green sprouts yet? Let yet is are, is the rate of change on the downside slowing? Is it how are you seeing the growth side of the equation? I can't find much positive other than maybe the labor market. Yeah, but what are no, you seeing, Mike? 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 Uh, the economy is booming, booming. All right, to lagging indicators perspective. Well, yeah, um, coincident to lagging. Yes, yeah, coincident to lagging yeah, indicators. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the economy is booming in a way that I have not observed in my career. Uh, you know, just a few charts on that. And so I think we can all agree that the leading indicators headed south. You know, I'll just start with a couple. Yeah. Uh, one of our favorite leading indicators is looking at, um, you know, the speed of the change in in, in religious rates. Uh, so the blue line in this upper panel just shows the real 10-year Treasury yield relative to the red line, which is the manufacturing PMI. And the middle panel just shows the tenure, the real 10-year Treasury yield on a three-month, on a three-year Z-score basis. And, every, you know, we, what you can see in this chart is every time we hit a, two sigma rise on a trailing through your basis in this, we tend to have a massive slowdown in the economy, um, just using the manufacturing PMI as a, as, mm -hmm. a, uh, as a proxy. It's the same when you look at it from a mortgage rate perspective, it's the same you look at it from the perspective of corporate borrowing costs. So whenever we have these, you know, three sigma or two to three sigma shocks to the upside in interest rates, we will have an economic slowdown. This is, it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, you could set your clock to that from an economic perspective. So we know the economy is, is headed lower from a, on a prospective basis. And that's very much consistent with our grid model forecasts that are calling for, you know, persistent deflation or deflation, which is where growth and inflation slow simultaneously. Going back to the coincident lagging indicators, which the Fed are focused on, you know, this is the issue. You know, as, as asset market participants, we need to accept the fact that, hey, look, the Fed, whether you agree with it or not, does it, it doesn't matter if we agree with it or not as investors, the Fed has chosen to not look at models and not guide base uh, their policy on the model projections because their models were so wrong last year that you could argue maybe many of them are broken. Um, and so now they're looking at coincident and lagging indicators to affirm or dis uh, confirm or dis uh, disconfirm um, their core beliefs about, you know, sort of the economy. And so when you look at the coincidental lagging indicators, I'll start, um, you know, slide 73 where we just show, you know, retail sales, industrial production, and then nominal real GDP. When you look at these things on a three month annualized rate of change basis, you know, we're still growing above trend in all these statistics, you know, 3.8% um, retail sales control slowing. Obviously, everything's slowing. That's not that's not that's not what's being debated here. It's whether or not it's still very robust and very strong. You know, so we're very much slowing. Um, but, you know, retail or actually industrial production actually reaccelerated. I'm not sure if that had anything to do with the uh, hurricane or that. But, you know, we're still well above trend there. Obviously, well above trend from nominal GDP perspective and actually well above, and quite above trend from a real GDP perspective. And so. You know, the, that's, you know, the one thing I'd call out is that it's not just a labor market. The labor market itself is obviously booming. Um, we showed that on slide 15 where, you know, all these different measures of the labor market, whether you look at private payrolls relative to the trend, pre-COVID trend, hourly earnings relative to the pre-COVID trend, um, you know, weekly hours not really moving, but you productize all those three things, you wind up with aggregate labor income that's just inside of 8%. Like this is, it's, it's, these are crazy numbers. I mean, I know they're just bars on a page, but like yep. the U.S. labor market, private sector aggregate labor income, that's all you, me, and everybody works in the private sector. Our income is growing at 8% on a three-month annualized basis. Months. This, are these real or nominal? This is this is nominal. Yeah, this is nominal. Yeah. These are nominal numbers. These are nominal. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so, but, but what are we, what are we, what, what is, what are the forward looking indicators saying? What are, what are the things that like, isn't that where the problem is? Or I, I guess, so this well, no, is, so, so we as investors 
have to focus on forward-looking indicators to establish positions, right? Yeah. But if you're trying to time the Fed pivot, right? your assessment, my assessment on forward-looking indicators is moot. It's irrelevant. Yeah, the Fed right. is going to wait to find data, yeah. clear, convincing yeah. evidence that they need to pivot. Right. So likely the pivot, although the last couple of days or the last day of rhetoric has been interesting, like this yeah. sort of people of, I don't even know what they're glomming onto because I think, you know, every all the rhetoric before that is like we're not pivoting we're just going to tighten this thing into the ground um so i guess the next question is what are the assets that we favor what how do we how do we attack this um you know position positioning generally is 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 smaller i guess right there's you know (laughs) is it time time to go fishing (laughs) and this is the time to go fishing market make it smaller no no. hold more cash No. no what what's the answer no, no. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you've heard me say this for a yeah. long time now, which is cash is king and it's an increasingly king-er as interest rates continue to rise on the short end of the curve. Um, you know, we're going to continue to see a, a step function increase higher in, in interest rates, and that's only going to make cash more king relative to other assets. And this is this is, um, you know, something I've been trying to coach investors on uh, over the last you know couple of weeks on, on, on FinTwit, you know, this concept about positioning for OPEX rallies and things like that. Yeah, that stuff definitely works from a short-term tactical perspective. But the deeper you go into a bear market, the le- with interest rates at four and five percent and on the short end of the curve, the less likely it is that investors are going to be willing to take those kinds of risk, right? And that's to me, it's that that to me is like a big big boogeyman out there because this retail mentality is still very much in animal spirits mode. When do I buy? When Lambo? You know, when's the pivot? Everyone wants to make money right now. And bear markets typically don't end when everyone wants to make money. Bear markets typically end when everyone is concerned about their their nest egg and, and they're trying to pres- preserve capital. And so I still think we got quite a ways to go uh, to the downside in terms of this process. Yeah, there's there's no doubt that there's been a conditioning in the last 10 to 12 years of buy the dip. And that's that, that's really the Fed's got your back kind of narrative, which if, if we're to believe anything that's been said by the Fed in the last few years and according to your Kind of main uh, scenario here. This is not going to happen, and so buy the dip is going to get you fired as an advisor or broke mm-hmm. as an investor. You mentioned something. I think I saw over Twitter. You said that the sixty forty portfolio is going to become the new sixty thirty ten. What is ten in your in your asset allocation? Well, the t- well, so the ten would be well. One, let me start by saying we don't we don't manage assets on a sixty forty basis or even a sixty thirty ten basis. I'm, I'm more making a broader comment about the kind of the investment advisor industry. Um, but but the 10 very clearly has to be, you know, you know, uh, sort of alternatives, physical and digital commodities, you know, things like, uh, you know, Bitcoin, et cetera, uh, you know, real estate. Uh, you know, you pull up a chart of, you know, asset class performance in the in the 70s, and it's pretty clear where you should have been allocated. I mean, it's, you know, things like gold, uh, you know, did really well as well back in that, in that, in that duration. Now, this is not the 70s. This is not the 70s, but the, the reason I, I'm making these comments is because, you know, we're coming from a very kind of asymmetric point, both in terms of the price of the U.S. dollar and in terms of sort of, you know, the relative allocation across, you know, kind of the mean investor balance sheet um, with respect to, you know, things that are tend to be positively correlated with dollar strength. You know, everyone's got sort of a lot of bonds in their portfolio. They've got a lot of. I mean, we can see this in our in our in our in our data that we track from a balance sheet perspective. People got a chock full of bonds. They're chock the chock full of U.S. over instead of international and emerging markets, and they're chock full of mega caps instead of small caps. They're chock full of growth instead of value. 
All those positions are wrong on a structural basis in a regime where there's, you know, 50% more inflation and the Fed is largely going to, you know, in our opinion, they're going to be forced to acquiesce to it. Otherwise, they're going to have to deal with a lot of, you know, uh, much more sort of what I would consider to be aggressive political consequences for trying to get to two. I don't think they're going to have the political cover to go from three to two. I, I think it's going to stop. I think that the the the, the, Jade, the Paul Volcker uh, and the kind of the conjuring of the image of the ghost of Paul Volcker, I think that stops. Uh, that's done when the unemployment rates, the different the difference is going from three, five on the U, U3 to five, as opposed to going from five to seven or eight. That Paul Volcker crap stops real quickly. So, uh, but again, by the way, just one quick before we move on, we're not there yet. Yeah. Everyone's like so, uh, the d- discussion on, on, amongst investors is about Fed pivot, win this, win that. We, yeah, yeah, we have yeah. a lot of slowing to do left ahead. No, of us. It, it's it's a lot of hope. It's hopium. Yeah. There's a, let's get the pivot. Let's get the bounce back. Let's get the V bottom again. Oh, we've done the correction. Let's get back to a recession. Why the hell are these people pivot? Agreed. Agreed. So when, when do we think that we can start to creep some duration into the bond portfolio and have it be worthwhile? Right. So cash is king at the moment because we're still adjusting to um, this liquidity shock, this tightening, this increasing rate. We're still waiting for the growth shock to manifest a little bit. And we're not seeing any kind of bond response that's um, sort of more typical of the previous 30 years minus the last nine months. Mm-hmm. And so when do you think we're going to get to a point where bonds are going to offer the longer end of the curve, the duration is going to o- offer enough um, enticement to start to think about incorporating that into the portfolio Um in order for, I don't know if there's a deflationary response that comes of this down the road. If we kill growth that much that we get into that stagflation or the, actually that that disinflation with the inflation side of it, where everyone's running back to the 30-year in order to preserve money. When, when do we start to incorporate some duration into the portfolio, do you think? My favorite question. I think we've done a great job of making sure you know our clients haven't, you know, his to weigh their life savings with, you know, buying bonds at every dip lower. You know, we made a few uh, mistakes on the long side of the bond trade uh, this year, namely in March and um, no, actually pretty much March. I think that was the only real mistake, uh, major mistake. Um, but but it, 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 the, the, it, answering the bond question, the duration question specifically, to me comes from two questions. One is, is the growth outlook really evolving in a really materially adverse way? That would catalyze investors to really start to price in, you know, material change and material inflection in Fed policy, not just a pause, but more importantly, rate cuts, et cetera, et cetera. We're not there yet. Um, you know, Annie, if you could throw this chart up, uh, there's a couple of charts I'll, I'll use to answer this question. But on the, on, the, on the domestic side of the equation, the bond market does not yet believe that an actual recession is the modal outcome. And the reason I say that is we have not seen the inversion that you typically see in the three-month, 10-year yield curve ahead of recession. I mean, this thing has a 100% track record in predicting recession. And it, in, from my perspective, you know, the, the researcher's perspective, I think Campbell Harvey wrote a great paper on this in the 80s, and it's still the, the conclusions still hold true, which is, you know, this is the countdown clock to actual recession. And so the lack of inversion here tells me that the bond market itself is really not that concerned about growth yet. And now it will, this thing was 12 basis points in, from inverting, you know, when I updated this chart the other day, that it's going to invert. And once it inverts persistently, not just like ticks a basis point below zero. Mm. Once it inverts persistently, it'll start to send signals to investors, lenders, 
you know, people in capital markets, business owners to start doing things and behaving differently. And then voila, 12, 18 months later, you wind up in a recession. I think a lot of investors were wrong footed in June. And I would put ourselves in this camp in thinking that a recession was you know, going to be more imminent, you know, like let's call it end of 2022, you know, so early 2023. And what we've learned throughout the summer, or at least what we 42 Macro has learned throughout the summer by sequencing all the data and reacting and, 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 and observing all these trends is that the economy, coincidental lagging indicators, booming, it's going to be a while before we get into an actual recession. So that's one part of your, the answer to your question, Mike, which is, you know, we got to wait for the bottom market to get concerned about growth before duration is a legitimate, um, before, you know, we can find the real floor to the price of, of long duration securities. The other side of the answer to your question comes from abroad, which is the inflation shock, really, and the response to the inflation shock from a policy perspective in Europe. Um, you know, what we're showing in this chart, showing the red line up here is the city eurozone inflation surprise index. And so it measures, you know, kind of the deviation in, in, in surprises when inflation data are reported. So higher means you tend to have more surprise, more shock value. And as you relative to the U.S. inflation surprise index, which is blue. And as you can see, their inflation problem from a surprise perspective, from a shocking perspective, is much bigger than ours. And as a function of that, we're seeing a three to four sigma rise on a trailing three-year basis in 10-year German boon yields that are you know, contributing to the rise that we're seeing in 10-year treasury yields and, and abroad. You know, fixed income markets are, are very global in nature. You know, it's not like <laughs> it's not like stocks where like you, you know, you, you, there's a real significant home bias. You know, investors in fixed income markets are going where there's the best rate of return on a risk adjusted and, 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 and financing basis. And so, you know, when you've, when in terms of the all in cost of capital. And so this is having a significant impact on, uh, on, 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 the, on the you know kind of bond markets globally. You know, I, I want to say this week alone, we've seen Germany authorize a 200 billion euro package uh, to finance their, to help finance their sort of fight against energy price inflation in terms of um, uh, what's uh, providing subsidies for consumers. I think that's somewhere around 5% of German GDP. France with another $100 billion package, that's like a 3% of French GDP. So there's a lot more supply coming online from a European bond perspective. And not only is that supply coming online in terms of the expansionary fiscal policy, we're seeing you know contractionary monetary policy over there as it's, well. So it's amazing. It's amazing. It's 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 causing problems in global fixed income markets. Who yeah. the hell needs to buy these securities? No one not no one needs them. Yeah. Well, financial repression is is eventually what this leads to. It's the 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 idea of you know forcing some of your financial uh, uh, companies and whether it's insurance companies or what we've experienced in the 1940s and in previous bouts of, uh, of uh, debt overhang in history. But I, wa I wanted to pull on a thread that you mentioned there, which is, ex I, I think it's the uh, biggest issue today, which is the energy crisis. In Europe, the US has been using the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve to some extent, uh, I, I think to some degree in the run up to the midterm elections, there's a very political angle to all this. So I wonder how much more they're willing to deplete the SPR uh, after uh, the million barrels this week, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and and now they're saying that they, they might extend that even further. So there's a big question there, but to some extent, the the the, the whole dynamic that we're seeing in the bond market in the U.S. and in Europe is very much predicated on the price of energy, and it's it, it it's gone haywire in Europe. The U.S. has this uh, escape valve, but if we do keep rising rates and, and, and trying to uh, uh, affect demand, 
which is essentially what they're trying to do. Oil prices and natural gas prices are still going to be oscillating uh, depending on these other variables, right? You, you have geopolitical risk. You have the lack of investment in the space. You have uh, uh, ESG kind of dominating the, the expenditure of CapEx towards energy. So to what extent could this affect your, your, your thesis, the, the energy prices, both in Europe and in the U.S.? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a factor. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to sort of put, put, you know, so the reason I say it's a factor is because a lot of the inflation we're observing in the U.S. economy is, has very little to do with energy at all. In fact, if you look at, you know, headline CPI, energy inflation is, is tracking down 40% on a, on a um, you know, on a three-month annualized basis. You know, we're at, we're at minus 45% and we're still dealing with, you know, six, seven, eight, nine percent core inflation pressure, whether you look at core goods or sorry, core CPI, core services, shelter, services, less rent of shelter. So to me, it's I think energy is, is a big factor structurally longer term in terms of this energy transition and the kind of energy insecurity that it seems like we're walking ourselves into by, you know, you know, feuding with Saudis, you know, obviously beefing with Russia and China. But, um, you know, these things aren't going to go away. And so understanding that these things aren't going to go away, in my opinion, is an issue for the bond market, you know, in terms of the thesis. Right. It's, it's an issue because it ultimately means that policymakers because, you know, we're in this fourth turning era where inequality, you know, is, is really driving populism from a political response perspective. You're going to continue to see policymakers opt for the, you know, the kind of the green button. You know, the red button is shut it all off, destroy the economy, get inflation down, which is what the Fed is trying to do. But the green button in, 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 in Brussels and in D.C., which is, well, it's actually just spend more money and help the consumers deal with this problem, which obviously makes the problem worse over the longer term. So going back to tying this all back to, you know, the decisions you should be making as an investor in your portfolio. Again, I, I keep saying this, like, I don't understand why so many investors are been in a rush to buy fixed income securities. I mean, we dipped our toe in in the summertime. You know, I think we bought, you know, the EDV or something like that was like the 30 year treasury, you know, had a nice little trade on it to the upside. And it was like, you know, I think this is over. We saw that September CPI print. And it just was like, no, this is this is we're, we're it's going to be a long time, not a long time. Sorry, not time in X axis terms, but more it, we could potentially still be a decent ways away for the market finding a clearing price for a lot of these global sovereign debt securities. Um, you know, just the reality is that I think that we all understand going back to that structural inflation model, you know, maybe whether you have a very sophisticated model like that or not, we all understand that there's going to be more inflation on the go forward basis than the kind of regime we've, we've exited. And so um, I think just finding a clearing price for that is, is still um, kind yeah, of the, then, the, key, the key driver of financial markets right now, which is why we can't find Then you get into some perversion of that with the potential for those who are defending their currencies, um, potentially dumping more bonds in order to do. If you think about the, the Chinese and the Japanese sort of issues there there's buy and sell decisions that might not be influenced by the current yield um, yeah. that that could cause wreak some havoc with with yields and I think the other thing that's really interesting with this reshoring that I'm very uncertain of is as you reshore and and take all the steps that are being taken by the US to sort of um, get go from you know sort of cheap and cheerful just in time, inventory um, channels and whatnot, supply chains to more redundancy, more reliability, higher cost. 
onshore, that actually is bullish for employment pretty significantly. Yeah. And I wonder if we don't get into that sort of precise weirdness from the 70s where wage inflation is uncontrollable to some degree, which is a really difficult trap to get out of if you're sitting in the U.S. and you're continuing to have very low unemployment rates, very high demand for employment and very high costs of labor, um, you know, that that can lead to a lot of issues that are it's an interesting spiral. It's a it's it, to me, it's like the biggest risk out there, which is well, I don't know if it's the biggest risk out there because I think the Fed understands the risk better than the average person I interact with uh, on these subject matters. Because you know, I keep hearing from folks saying, like, look, the supply, the issue to this inflation problem is more supply, more energy, more you know, reshore, you know, all more supply. Yeah. You know, we we you know, don't don't it's not that they shouldn't be taking a weed whacker to demand, they should be helping us, you know, improve, increase supply. And I say, sure, yeah, that'd be great. If the unemployment rate wasn't already at 3.5%, yeah. Who, who's going to drill oil in a fully employed America? You know, this is this is the issue. This is why you have cycles. This is why inflation, you know, if you look at it from a grid regime perspective, is always the peak of the cycle. You know, you have inflation because you're running up against capacity constraints. And the only way to ameliorate those capacity constraints isn't to come lick your finger out of here and play hocus pocus, you know, fintwit war and the more supply. It's no, we need to reallocate resources in the economy. And the only way to do that is with one of these red bars. You know, these yeah. red bars are very, uh, very, um, they're very, they're, they're very necessary in the capitalist society. And so if we don't have some program or plan in place to import a bunch of labor, you know, through immigration, which very clearly <laughs> that's not going to be anything solved on that front in a long period of time, uh, could be, could be quite a while there. We're going to have to see an uptick in unemployment. We're going to have to see a capital reallocation, and those things need to happen. They need to occur in order for us to get that incremental supply to get out of this um, this inflation mess. If we just try to stick around at a three and a half percent unemployment rate indefinitely, we're not going to. None of these problems are going to get solved. And so, yeah. I, unfortunately, I think investors you know think about this the wrong way, which is trying to find the easy way out. Guess what? When inflation's at nine percent. Seven, eight, nine percent on a core basis. There are no easy ways out. Yeah, we already had the easy. Like, was the beginning yeah. here. Twenty twenty yeah, to twenty twenty one. If you didn't make money, then too bad. Sorry. Yeah, I think I think there's an <laughs> and, interesting and, argument too for for like a lot of a lot of automation and a lot of now this is kind of a longer term thing. Like this is a five over the next five seven years. I think we're going to see the way we interact with a lot of services change in, in that we're going to adopt automation because we're going to need to portion the labor force. We're going to need to put jobs where we actually need humans and where we can automate, whether that's through AI or ro robot automation or the service industry, less interaction with human contact, more like you press a button and you get your stuff. I, I think there's a you know longer term that has to happen. Yeah. So we just don't uh, have the yes, humans. It, it, it absolutely has to happen if you consider the decline in, in working force, um, yeah. working working age population in places like China, some of these large, yeah. um, you know, kind of global manufacturing hubs. If you also consider the fact that we've had a structural downshift in our labor force participation rate that it accelerated in the COVID era, it's already been trending lower since you know like two thousand. Basically, it's uh, it's it's actually accelerated in the COVID era. One thing I would say on automation is that we're actually moving in the wrong direction. You know, automation is one of the factors that we use in this in this structural inflation model. 
and you know how we proxy automation because you know there's no real statistic out there. Right. We look at the consumption of fixed capital relative to the total dollars amounts that we're spending on employee compensation, and we're actually going down in terms of capex relative to the you know to relative to employee compensation. So it's actually contributing um, wow. um, a positive um, um, a kind of factor to the uh, to the overall inflation model. So um, we need to reverse this trend. You know, this is something that's you know kind of. You know, really started in the mid 2015, right around 2014, 2015, and it's you know it's 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 showing up in the in the labor data. You know, one thing I call out and flag on the on the labor side is we're at an all time high in terms of the private sector um, employee compensation index, which is the broadest measure of wages and salaries and benefits in the U.S. economy. Uh, unfortunately, the data only goes back to 2001, but you know at 5.5 percent, you know we're 300 basis points, you know higher than where we trended at pre COVID. You know I don't know how we go back to that level. Again, I just I just don't know how we go back to that level in the context of a hundred basis point de- decline in the labor force participation rate, hundred basis hundred plus basis point decline in the unemployment uh, population ratio. I don't and and not not really improving anymore. You know, I think a lot of people really left the labor force for a variety of different reasons. You know, elderly people don't want to die on the job with COVID. You know, people probably moved in that you know to cheaper localities, to low tax states. They don't need to make as much. You know, you don't need two income households. You know, going to one single income households, et cetera. There's all these different reasons, and maybe people just decided to you know work less. Who knows? That's also a legitimate reason as well. Like, the, just the, the economy is running out of resources, both mm-hmm. domestically and globally. And as a function of running out of resources, we're having a regime shift higher in terms of inflation, and we all have to deal with it. And what the reason we all have to deal with this is because the bond market has to deal with it. The bond market still has not figured out what the right price for a 10 or 30 year treasury is yet, yield is. So I, I, I wanted to take a step back and go from US to global, uh, mm-hmm. hinging what, on what you're saying. And one of the reasons, one of the factors that has probably driven oil prices down to a meaningful degree has been the rolling lockdowns in China and China's zero COVID policy. So that demand hasn't been in the market now for several months. How concerned are you uh, when they do? Uh, the, there's some speculation that once she is anointed uh, emperor for life, or whatever the title is going to be, that they're likely to relax that to some degree, or, or even if that's not the variable, once they do start to relax, that the, that demand starts to come back online, and the SPR starts to get depleted to a point where where uh, you know they're no longer willing to keep prices at the pump as down uh, at at the cost of the strategic reserve. How concerned are you with the, the Fed's ability to continue to fight inflation with the blunt tool of monetary policy? So, uh, well, the, the, the fighting inflation with a blunt tool like monetary policy is not the best outcome. The best outcome is a combination of monetary policy, fiscal policy, you know, beha- consumer changes, behavioral changes, but that's not how this works, right? You know, like we, we don't get optimal outcomes all the time. In fact, we rarely get optimal outcomes. We just have to deal with it. as investors. It's not our job to say what should be the best thing. It's our job to just position for what's going to happen, figure out what's going to happen and position for it. You know, so like that's to me, that's, that's, you know, I tend not, if you can tell, like I tend not to entertain too many what if debates, you know, I, I focus on the what is and how that's going to change so I can make money. Like that's to me, that's, that's where we need to be that's where we need to reside as investors. You know, going back to China, I'll be the first person to tell you, and I sh- I'll be the first in the lo- should, what should be a very long line of people to say we have no freaking clue what the Chinese authorities are going to do on zero COVID. You know, this is a policy that's being kind of orchestrated by what is effectively a czar, you know, increasingly becoming a czar. And we don't have any insights and clues as to what he's going to do. All we can do is read the tea leaves 
on how increasingly tough they're cracking down, which I would argue, you know, they're, you know, they, they actually are. You, there's riot police and I want to say Chindu and Shenzhen, you know, trying to prevent people from, you know, kind of violating zero COVID. And so, you know, that's as recently as last week. So like, to me, it doesn't look like they're doing anything different on zero COVID anytime soon, but I have no basis to know. What I know is that if they do something different, we need to react to that as investors. And, you know, I would suspect we'd start to see that, um, you know, kind of, um, you know, the, the whisper at the bare minimum, the whispers of that show up in, in the data in terms of Chinese uh, energy uh, imports, et cetera. Um, you know, Chinese imports of, you know, kind of, you know, raw commodities that would, you know, kind of go coincide with more economic activity. We haven't really seen that yet, nor have we seen it in the prices of these of these assets. So, uh, you know, I have a reasonable degree of confidence that we're still in the status quo. But again, who knows? Nobody knows what the Chinese Communist Party is going to do. We all pretend like we know and we spend all day on, not we, but people spend all day on FinTwit opining about these things. But the reality is they don't know any more than they know what the President Biden's going to do tomorrow. That's fair enough. So uh, moving from the realm of speculation to leading indicators and using the BOJ as probably the the leading central bank, they were the first ones to implement QE. They're now the first ones to implement yield curve control. But Europe was actually quite quick to follow for reasons that we've we've already cut, touched on here briefly. So uh, the Bank of England's done it. The European Central Bank has done it to some degree. Uh, the BOJ market has kind of started to display unhealthy signs uh, for, for, for bond investors. One worries that Europe would be next. How concerned are you uh, where this leads uh, to the health and the structure of sovereign debt markets? Uh, oh, concerned would be the wrong word because I, you know, I really don't care. They're all numbers on a page. But the one thing I'll say is you know, these policymakers have a choice, right? You know, so you know, we, one thing, we, you know, we have three different models that we use to identify and understand to understand currency markets, to figure out what the variables are that are driving currency so that we can make better trades, you know, inform ourselves to make better trades in, 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 current, in currency. So, you know, one, you can think about it from a balance of payments perspective, which is, you know, how we look at that is just a change in the current account balance relative to the change in nominal effective exchange rate. The second, um, you know, second framework would be kind of the, you know, kind of more core, you know, what is money, what is trust kind of a framework. And we look at that in terms of the, the deviation from trend in terms of the sovereign budget balance as, as a percent of GDP, again, relative to the changes in the nominal effective exchange rate. And then we look at, you know, kind of monetary policy divergences, kind of the, you know, the real interest rate differentials, if you will, kind of the, that's kind of the, um, you know, kind of the thing that most people think about, but these other two factors tend to be pretty meaningful factors at different times as well. Um, right now, this model, the, you know, kind of the monetary policy divergence model is explaining currency market movement better than all the, the other two models. And so you know, t- that tells me that if Europe continues to opt for, you know, what, what it seems like, you know, kind of, I don't know, using the monetary authority's balance sheet to capitalize fiscal, you know, incremental fiscal, you know, kind of support for the economy, you know, they'll, they'll couch it however they need to couch it from a, you know, um, you know, this is a shock, you know, we're just responding to the shock. However they couch it is irrelevant. What matters is the supply and demand of sovereign debt in this globally, you know, coordinated system. And the reality is if we start to see those fiscal authorities really start to flex their balance sheets in a material way to acquiesce to the, to the monetary authorities, to acquiesce to the fiscal authorities in these, these jurisdictions, we're going to see those currencies get smoked. We're going to see the inflation problem in those jurisdictions, you know, continue to fester and continue to be uh, an issue. Now, obviously, on a year over year rate of change basis, inflation is going to come down everywhere in the world. We know that um, you know, our models are forecasting that our grid models and you know, we project this for 35 different economies in terms of the rate of change of growth, rate of change of inflation, and what that means 
from an economic uh, regime signaling standpoint. So the whole world is in this sea of blue, and the sea of blue, you know, means that both growth and inflation are slowing simultaneously. That's you know that's where you're in this in this particular uh, quadrant there. Now that that doesn't mean that inflation is going to go to a level that is politically palatable or acceptable from the perspective of the uh, of the central bankers' um, uh, inflation targets. So you know, kind of going back to answer your question, Richard, it it it's a choice. We don't know what the how they're going to choose, but based on the tea leaves, based on the incremental evidence we got this week and what we got oh, from um, you know from from Bank of England or from nothing from England throughout this most recent month which is that's probably where we're headed, which is Europe is going to continue to be easier, both fiscally and monetarily relative to the U.S., which ultimately translates to more dollar strength and more of everything you've seen on your screens year to date. Yeah, well, especially well, awesome. with quantitative tightening, right? Uh, they, they, they show no signs of easing up on QT, right? They're, they're, they're both raising interest rates and offloading the Fed's balance sheet uh, uh, to, to a meaningful degree. If they had to pivot, which one of those do you think would go first? Who? Uh, would they interrupt QT and, and perhaps start buying bonds again? Or would they pause and perhaps signal a, a reduction in interest rates? Yeah, it strikes me that, you know, based on, you know, kind of, you know, you know Powell's been pretty clear about understanding the history around monetary policy tightening cycles. And, you know, you kind of look at the, you know, what Volcker had to do in the 70s and 80s, which is basically get real interest rates on a realized basis, realized real yields, which are you know, yields across the Treasury curve higher than reported inflation using core inflation or core CPI or core PCE rather uh, as the uh, as the as inflation um, adjustment here. Um, so, you know, we're still quite a ways away on that front. And so it's my belief that the Fed understanding the lessons and telling us, consistently telling us that they understand the lessons of the 70s, I think they're going to be very reluctant. I mean, way more reluctant than what's currently priced in the euro dollar markets, Fed funds, futures, et cetera, et cetera, to cut interest rates. I think they were going to have to see some substantial economic pain for them to cut interest rates. I think the likelihood that they expand their balance sheet to address what they will probably couch as market functioning or liquidity issues in the treasury market is likely to be the, the first the first uh, policy move. Now they're not going to be hiking interest rates if and when they do that. We'll, we'll very you know, much likely have been in a uh, in a uh, in a in a in a stable interest rate regime from the, in that at that particular time at that particular juncture. Um, but again, it's it's I, I think the concept of cutting interest rates any one cutting them at all, but certainly cutting them at a, at a material degree is something that we as investors need to just get out of our heads from now until at least the end of next year. And I think I, I take great offense to the current pricing in the euro dollar market, which still thinks the Fed's going to cut rates next year. Twenty five basis points. That's twenty five basis points of market risk to every investor in the world right now, because I don't think they are. In fact, it's, it's very unlikely that they do. So could you see them kind of deploying this hybrid? OK, we're not going to stop our interest rate hike. We, we might maybe take a pause. But could you see them interrupting QT if there are signs that something is meaningfully Breaking because the, the the issue is if you do see uh, any meaningful break in whether it's the repo market or the functioning of bond markets and capital markets to to, to a larger extent that has spillover implications uh, to the economy obviously so do, do, would you see then perhaps pausing QT maybe even outright reversing it uh, for, for for a brief stint if they were to see any signs and what might that those signs have to be. 
Uh, the more si- the the number one obvious sign is that you, me, everyone watching this has lost a shit ton more money, for lack of a better word. Right? They're not going to pivot from their policy and help make us richer unless something really breaks. Like, you don't want to be long for the break. And this is the, the you know the you know, I've been kind of answering questions like this all year. You know, from retail investors, et cetera, like win by it's all it's the win by win by the dip, win the pivot. It's like these people are only going to pivot. After all hell breaks loose. So you don't want to be long for the all hell breaking loose part, right? That, that's 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 how you, you lose your entire life savings. This is we've seen this movie many times before. Uh, in terms of the bond market, and you know, I've been going back and forth with the client on this. I have great discussions this week with them on this. You know, the 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 term premium are rising and they've you know risen pretty meaningfully in recent months. You know, we've gone from basically minus 80 basis points to minus 33 basis points on the 10-year in terms of term premium. But we're still negative. Like the bond market is not broken. The bond market is just repricing because there's been a change in policy rate expectations. There's been a change in inflation expectations, and there's been a you know a rise, you know, a higher premium assigned to inflation volatility. Like the bond market is going down in price for very legitimate supply and demand fundamental reasons. It's not breaking. It's just repricing according to the changes in the economy and the changes in policy associated with those changes in the economy. If the bond market was breaking, you'd see something that looks like this, which is a big spike in term premium. You know, we saw that in, in, in March of 2020. Um, we saw that obviously in 2008 when all hell broke loose then. That's not happening right now. Now, once that happens, I would expect to see something like, hey, look, $95 billion a month of QE is, a QT is too much. Maybe we dialed it down. Maybe we just hold the balance sheet flat. You know, maybe, maybe our estimate of, you know, um, reserves in the system, like the minimum requirement level of reserves is, is too high or too low. Maybe we need to rise that higher and stop quantitative tightening. I could see all that happening. But guess what? If all that happens, it's going to be after term premium spike and real interest rate spike and the market pukes. You know, like you don't want to be long for that process. You know, you get this, con- not you guys, but I'm just trying to help. Yeah. People need to understand that the Fed is not going to pivot until you lose a shit ton of money. Understand yeah. that. So don't be long before they yeah. pivot. The, the pivot is, yeah. Pivot. yeah. You don't want to be long the pivot. The pivot yeah. was a catastrophic event, right? Yeah. So why do you want to be sitting there long the pivot? Wait till that pivit comes. Wait, wait till they till pivot. They, wait till they, wait, <laughs> yeah. wait for yeah. it. Markets so, so stop panicking. Markets yeah. stop panicking when central banks start panicking. So the the yeah. pivot is the central banks starting to panic. 100%. I'm just curious, Mike, before you shift gears. So w- within the 95 billion dollars a month of QT. I think there's 60 in treasuries, which I'm, I'm assuming is being absorbed by the primary dealers. Who's absorbing the other 35 billion in the mortgage assets? Oh, I mean, we, I mean, we, I mean, the, the capital markets. So when the Fed does- Are our market participants buying those? Obviously right. not. You pull up a chart of mortgage rates. <laughs> that chart of mortgage rates? Like so, so that's what I'm saying. It, sure. it, it, it seems like that might be the uh, the breakage point sooner than than many people expect. So what? Why do we? Keep, no offense, Richard, but why do we keep using the word break? It's it, they're trying to break things. They're not break. is not we keep not we, but the the the, the, the narrative out there is the Fed is going to break something. The Fed is trying to break something. They want to break stuff because inflation is too high. We can't keep talking about breaking things yeah. like it's an accident. And therefore, they're going no, to pivot after the it's thing. It's their intention. Breaking. It's their intention. Let me two very important slides here um, in this deck, and now I'm fired up. 
I had have, have <laughs> We got him triggered, man. We got yeah. him triggered. <laughs> oh no, you didn't trigger me, but it's it's very clearly something that's been uh, be in my bonnet all year because I keep yeah, having yeah. these conversations with different investors on Twitter. The Fed is forecasting an 180 basis point decline in the core PCE year-over-year rate of change of core PCE by the end of next year. So that's that's you know relative to the most recent data that's 16 months away. We've never seen a 180 basis point decline in core PCE on a 16 month time horizon without an actual recession, without one of these red bars. The Fed, going back to this chart here, is forecasting unemployment rate to be at 4.4% by the end of next year. That's a 90 basis point rise from where we are in September. We have never seen a 90 basis point rise over a 15 month interval in the unemployment rate that, that does not correspond to a recession. So riddle me this. Is the Federal Reserve implicitly signaling a recession? I happen to think they are. They're not going to come out and use the R word because they'll hell to break loose if they did. But I think they are. I think they know we need a recession to get this inflation problem under control. So if they're implicitly signaling a recession, why would they respond to a recession? Why would they panic when a recession happens? They know it's coming. They're, they're causing it. They're the ones who are causing it. It's the Paul all but uh, Powell all but said so in the Q and A yeah. following the last uh, the last meeting. Yeah, it's 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 again. Investors must reorient their thought process around the Fed reaction function. They are trying to break things in the economy. They're trying to break things in the financial markets. They want you, Mike, Richard, everyone watching, me included, to be poor so that we can keep that $9 trillion of cash that's sitting on household balance sheets in, in where it is, in checking accounts and money market funds. They don't want it in the CPI index. They don't want it in the core PCE index. They want to keep that money where it is. And until we all understand that as investors, we're not we're going we're gonna to be in, impatient and in a hurry to buy the dip. And I, I just I fear we haven't seen the worst of this bear market, and people are going to buy the dip way too early Think you know with these kind of wacky theories on something broke, therefore the Fed's going to pivot, and I guarantee you, people are going to lose a lot of money on that. I love it. So we've yeah. we've we've kept you for an hour, and we said we we're going to be an hour today. So let's let's keep them wanting more. So uh, uh, as a final thought, um, shit's going to break. There's <laughs> no rush. There's a reason we've got four plus percent rates of return on holding cash. They want us to hold cash because like they you know the world is trying to encourage us to be a little bit more conservative. Maybe we should heed that. So for the typical sort of more long only investor, what are some thoughts and then maybe long short investor, what are your thoughts to kind of close? We've talked a lot about a lot of stuff. What do we do now? What are some of the things around the edges that that you would be able to share to people who aren't your members because if you want to know everything that DD's doing, Buck up and freaking sign up and get the real deal. If you're just trying to get around the edges, some ideas of what to do, then we're just going to we'll give you a little bit, DD. Give them a little bit around the edges. Well, but not, too, so not too much. Make them want that want to get on the on the uh, on the uh, subscription. Yeah, I mean, if you can, if you can park pull this up, I, <laughs> I'll give them, I'll give them everything but the actual. But the actual. There you go. There you go. So I mean, you know, we're sitting here. Uh, you know, we're, we're net short equity, credit, commodity exposure um, in terms of uh, the aggregate portfolio construction. Uh, we're sitting here with about 55% of our assets in fixed income, FX and vol. And trust me, there is no duration in that. <laughs> we're not we're not riding this bear bond. We're not buying the dip all the way down to the lows and bond prices. 
you know, all that, all that, uh, most of that is in, in very short term uh, diminishments because again, we're finally staying a yield on our cash. Uh, got about 17 and a half percent cash there, you know, waiting to dip our toes in. But again, we're not in a hurry. You know, one thing I will say is when we do, we've done, I mean, I, th I think we've done as much research on understanding, you know, kind of the reaction function of the market to things like Fed pivots, et cetera, historically, and understanding just kind of the bear market dynamics in general. You know, a couple stats I'll throw out at you. There's been 17 bear markets over the last hundred years, you know, kind of starting with the act one of the Great Depression. You know, the median decline in these bear markets is minus 28%. The median decline in the last three months is minus 19%. So effectively, two-thirds of the declines you get in these bear markets comes into people puking the lows. We have obviously not puked the lows. We've not seen enough fixed curve backwardation. We've not seen a lot of different things. You know, if you look at our cross-asset correction risk indicator, um, that's on slide 140. You know, we still haven't seen this type of capitulation you typically see at these capitulatory lows, which tells us it's likely still ahead of us because every bear market tends to capitulate to the downside uh, towards the end of the process. You know, we're still that's still ahead of us. So we can't be in a hurry to say, well, you know, don't let the cash burn a hole in your wallet. Let the, the, the specter of losing more money burn a hole in your wallet. It's OK to sit here and clip coupons at three to four percent on the short end of the Treasury curve until you get more clarity around some of these dynamics. And, you know, this brings me back to a, a conversation we we're having earlier. One thing we haven't talked about yet, and I think we should save it for the next show, which is it's not just about the Fed pivot, because what you buy, I would agree, you do want to buy when the Fed pivots. In fact, bear markets tend to bottom roughly one month after the Fed pivot on a median basis. Inflationary bear markets actually tend to take a little bit longer. They tend to bottom three months uh, on a median basis after those, um, after those Fed pivots, but that's neither here nor there. What you buy has everything to do with where we are in the growth cycle at that particular point in time. Are you going high beta? Are you going international? Are you going, you know, sort of cyclicals? Or are you going duration? Are you going mega, you know, low beta? You're going mega cap, you're going US. You know, that to me, that answer to that question, it really depends on the timing of that pivot. Because again, we're not quite towards the bottom uh, of the growth cycle. You know, if you look at, sorry, the, right. the growth cycle in the US specifically, you know, we're, we're, you know, tracking around the bottom sometime kind of mid, mid to, you know, Q3 of next year, if you will. And right. so, if we pivot here, you're get, going to want to play defense. We pivot here, you're going to play offense. So to me, I think right. that, that's the so it's, it's a little bit of disinflationary growth, maybe versus inflationary growth in yeah, those yeah, sort of sectors that you might influence exposures geographically, sectors within the the S and P 500, and those types yeah. of things would would have that impact. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we we, yeah. we know what you should be doing based on where we are today, but this could change. You know, this could be Goldilocks by the time they pivot. You know, if they pivot, you know, well into next year. Right. Yeah. And so let's let's be let's be let's not assume that we know what to buy. We know we, we will need to be buying and taking up our exposure to risk when they pivot. But what we buy when we take up our exposure to risk really comes down to what grid regime will we be from a risk reward perspective um, in terms of, uh, you know, that particular interval. So. We'll check back. Um, yeah. Definitely come check us out at 42 well, Macro. Classic. Yeah, for sure. 42 Macro and uh, Darius Dale. And it's been great having you here. I, th I think, you know, on that note, too, you think about the bottom of the market in 2001, 2003. That was inflationary, right? You wanted to yeah. buy Canada, Australia, yeah. 
Chile, um, you know, that type of thing. And then you look at the bottom in 08, 09, it was much more of that disinflationary growth. You wanted to buy NASDAQ, you wanted to buy those tech stocks. I think that's what you're sort of alluding to is there are different regimes that are going to make different areas that are structurally inclined once there is a pivot. And we don't actually know what those regimes are yet. So let's wait and see what they are, get more information and watch for it. And then when it happens, you know, stay tuned. We'll be back. 100%, 100%, man. Mike, Richard. Darius, right. where can people find you? Uh, you want to leave yeah. your Twitter handle and uh, all other handles that are noteworthy? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, come check us out at 42 Macro. I mean, we do, uh, obviously, institutional research for everybody. That's kind of our motto. Um, you know, institutional risk, macro risk management for everyone. Um, so, you know, depends on where – who cares where you are in the capital structure. I think everybody needs good macro research and good, a good macro process. I don't think we do research. I think we, we, we sell process more than anything. Um, 42 Macro detail, my, my Twitter handle. For those of you who don't follow and uh, come check us out. We appreciate you. Yeah. Appreciate you too, DD. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Appreciate yeah. it. Have awesome, a great weekend. Have a good weekend. We know Mike's going to have a good weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> See you guys. Cheers. See the music. Cheers. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestorsAll. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let adaptive asset allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.